Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we're in Luke chapter 10. We're going to read the whole chapter today, 1 through 42. We're going to work our way through it. I'll read a little bit, then pause and reflect on it a little bit. But I want to just briefly touch on where we were last week. Luke chapter 9. We went through verses uh, 1, or we we kind of broke it in half. Uh, uh, We finished up Luke chapter 9 last week. We picked up the transfiguration, verse 28, all the way up through verse 62. But last week in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 53, um, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And I want us thinking about that because that is the the transition point for the whole rest of the book. From that point forward at the end of Luke 9, we're told that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem and everything that happens from that point forward revolves around that conviction that Jesus is now heading towards Jerusalem, heading towards his death, and he's got a mission. He is heading for one purpose and one purpose only. So everything that happens along this path from this point forward, it feeds into this idea. But the confusion comes when you read all of the Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels, they're very similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus going to Jerusalem one time. But John records Jesus going to Jerusalem four times. So which is it? How many times did he go to Jerusalem? Well, he did go to Jerusalem many times, at least four times. The four times that are recorded in the book of John all sent around festivals because Jesus was a faithful Jew, so he went to Jerusalem to celebrate the the festivals. So he was in Passover multiple, he went to Jerusalem for Passover multiple times. He went to Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah. He went to Jerusalem to celebrate um, multiple of the uh, the feasts. I put in my notes that I'll post online today um, the scriptures in John where he goes into Jerusalem. But the point is that Jesus traveled to Jerusalem many times but Luke wants your attention on this final time. Okay, so that is, this is not a discrepancy. You don't read it and you're like, well, this book's saying one thing and this book's saying another thing. If I were gonna tell you a story of my life, there would be specific moments that I would intentionally leave out because it doesn't serve the story of what I'm trying to talk about at this moment, right? So when Luke is writing his gospel, he's drawing your attention to this final time of Jesus going to Jerusalem. That's why there's only one recorded time of him going there, even though he went there uh, multiple times. The book is structured in such a way that most of the, from one up to about nine, most of it takes place up in the north, around his hometown, around Galilee. I'll show you a map this morning, um, just kind of surrounding some of those cities that are gonna be called out in the book today. But I want you to really draw your attention to what Luke wants you to see, which is from this point forward, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And from this point forward, as Christ moves towards Jerusalem, the story is gonna start unfolding very rapidly. Things are gonna start expanding in a way that you had not really anticipated. And what I mean by that is um, things that had happened before are now going to happen again in even bigger ways. More people are gonna be included. Originally, Jesus sent out the 12. We see today in uh, Luke chapter 10, the 12 has now become 72. 
The ministry that was up just around the Sea of Galilee, up in the north, now it's spreading down into Israel, down into Judah, down into around Jerusalem. Luke continues his book in the book of Acts, and that message, it spreads out from Israel, out into the whole Gentile region, to the entire world, to Rome, and then to all of the known world. And when you read Luke 10, I want you walking away with this sense that Luke is sketching for us a story of kingdom growth. What you're going to see here is a collection of stories where we're going from just numerical growth from 12 to 72, but also this sense of spiritual growth, that the kingdom of light is consuming and pushing back the kingdom of darkness. Territory that the enemy had and was under his control, now that is now under the king's territory. So this sense of numerical growth, but also spiritual growth, but also this sense of inner growth. The idea that the inner work of Christ's teaching start growing on the inside of you to the point where they start coming out to your outward life. That's the sense I want you to understand as we're going through Luke chapter 10 today. This sense that every story that we're going to read has this, this seasoning of growth and transformation and expansion. That the kingdom of God is like this freight train, this bullet train, and it's not stopping. It's like a wildfire. If you've driven north on Thomasville Road the last couple weeks, you've seen these controlled burns. It's like that, but out of control. It's consuming everything. Literally anything that comes in its path is going to be left completely transformed. That's the sense I want you understanding, or what I want you walking into Luke chapter 10 with. That this kingdom, this thing that Jesus is preaching, it's not some clean little teaching or philosophy that just can kind of sit on alone or sit on a shelf with some of these other worldly ideas or approaches to life. It is not like that at all. There is nothing like the kingdom of God. And it expands and consumes at a rapid pace. It never shrinks back. It just keeps consuming and consuming and consuming. That's the sense I want you coming to Luke 10 with today, all right? So let's get into it. Luke chapter 10, we're gonna start in verse one. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. Some manuscripts say 70. 72 others sent them on ahead of them, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bags, no knapsack, no sandal, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if it's not, it will turn to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Don't go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, 
Go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? Shall you be brought down? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. He's speaking to the disciples. The one who hears you, he hears me. The one who rejects you is rejecting me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So this section centers on the 72 being sent out. It's the reason why I wrote, read those 20 verses together because the entire story is collected as one thought. It starts out with the sending of the 72 and then it goes to a warning to the cities that these 72 are going to and then we're told what happens when those 72 return. So that's kind of the collection of these 20 verses. It starts off in verses 1 through 12, Jesus sending out the 72 or 70, depending on the uh, manuscript that we're uh, being translated from. And the work that's happening here is an expansion on Luke 9, 1 through 6, where there is the 12. Now we remember this, we read it two weeks ago. Luke, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and gives them very similar instructions. Don't take any plans, don't take any backup, don't take any extra clothes. All you need to do is go into town and preach the gospel and everything else is gonna be taken care of you. Don't worry about where you're gonna stay. People are gonna open their homes and they're gonna receive you. Don't worry about what you're gonna to bring to eat. People will provide that for you. Stop worrying and watch how the Lord is gonna provide for you through you being obedient. All right, that's kind of the first instruction. Fully rely on God as the provider. That was the instruction for the 12, this instruction for the 72. The second instruction he gives them is when you're there in the town, I want you to pray for folks and I want you to preach the gospel. That's the mission. You're supposed to be praying for people around you. You're supposed to be preaching the gospel. Now I want you to just see the transition here from the growth of the 12 to the 72, because that 72 is gonna grow beyond that, and then it's gonna grow beyond that to billions around the world today. And so these instructions, in a way, they resonate in our ears for the things we're supposed to be doing on a daily basis. We're supposed to be daily trusting on the Lord to be our provider. We're daily supposed to be looking at every moment that we're given, that breath in our lungs, God gave it to us, so how are we gonna give it back to him? Looking at every opportunity we can to be faithful, to preach the gospel, to pray for people. 
And then the final instruction is while you're doing that, a lot of people won't accept you. They'll push back. They don't want anything you have to say. They're going to reject you. Be okay with that. Don't take it personal. So these are the instructions for the 72. I would argue that this, these are instructions that then extend uh, into us. We'll get to that in a moment. But the instructions are, I want you trusting me for the provision of this trip. I want you, while you're on this trip, praying for and preaching the gospel. I want you trusting me. I want you on mission with me. And I want you to not take it personal when people don't accept the message. And then he pivots from addressing the people, the disciples, the 72 he's sending out, to addressing these cities. Now, I assume that in this crowd, some members of those cities are probably standing there before him, but Jesus likes to speak um, at, at this level, and then all of a sudden, within one sentence, pivot, and now he's talking at this level. And if you can't keep up, it's too bad for you. So he's talking to these guys, and then he's talking on the broader sense I'm talking about these cities, and he declares a woe to them. And he says to them, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Capernaum. Why is he saying woe? He's saying woe unto you because this is the last time that I'm gonna be up here doing ministry. This is an opportunity you need to take seriously because you might not get another opportunity to hear this. And if you're gonna treat the Messiah, and you're going to treat the king and his followers, the ones he has given the responsibility to proclaim his message, if you're going to treat them in such a way that their message is not important, and therefore the king who sent the message is not important, then woe unto you. Be careful what's coming. Woe unto you that come to church each week and hear the gospel message, hear what the word of God teaches, and ignore it or treat it as less valuable. Handle it with no reverence and no awe. Woe to the cities who structure things in such a way that we call good evil and evil good. Now these cities probably unfamiliar to you, so I wanna show you a map. What I wanna do is, this map is kind of two levels. Uh, it's very similar to the one that I had showed you before. So the first section we're going to show you here is going to be the entire world map, all right? We're going to zoom in here on the Middle East. This is going to be Israel. I split Israel into three seconds, sections. Judah's in the south, that's where Jerusalem is. Samaria's in the middle, Galilee's in the north. Going to zoom into Galilee. This is the region that Jesus is talking about. All right, now just so you guys don't feel like you got cheated, there is my green laser pointer. We're up here, these three dots. Like I went to church and he didn't even use his laser pointer. So this is the Sea of Galilee, this is the north. This is where the entire ministry of, of, of Luke one through nine has been taking place. The beginning of 10, this is where this is all taking place, up in the north. You can go here today. Where Jesus and his disciples walked around the Sea of Galilee and did ministry, this is a real place. This is a historical thing. This actually happened. And these three cities, Chorazin, Capernaum, Bethsaida, these are the cities where Jesus tells his disciples, these 72, I want you to go out and I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to stay in homes up there. I want you to set captives free. I want my kingdom expanding up here in these cities. And woe to these cities if they reject you because time is short. 
Time is short and you may not get another opportunity to hear this message. You're not promised tomorrow. You can't say, I'll do something about this whole Jesus thing tomorrow. I'll take my life seriously. I will take my spiritual walk seriously tomorrow. That's when I'll take it seriously. You're not promised tomorrow. You may not get tomorrow. You need to hear the good news and believe it because you may not get another chance. So this section starts with the 72, then it goes to the map, then it goes to the map, then it goes to 72, then it goes to the, the cities. Uh, Jesus proclaims this woe to these cities. And then the very end from 17 to 22, 20, yeah, 20, we get the disciples coming back. These 72, they return and they have unbelievable news. And it's a series of rejoicing. They come back and they're like, Jesus, you're never gonna believe what happened. People that were possessed by, the, by demons, like all we had to do was, in Jesus' name, cast them out, and they listened to you. It was wild. <laughs> I never seen anything like it. The kingdom of darkness, they listen to your name. They're overjoyed, they're rejoicing. The kingdom of God has power to change lives and whoop darkness. That's good news. And then Jesus pivots and he rejoices. He's like, man, I've been in darkness for a long time, guys. I saw Satan kicked out of heaven. He got kicked out and he flew to earth like lightning. And guess what? I, I wasn't happy enough for him just to get kicked out of heaven. Now I'm here on his turf and I'm taking his ground back. Because this is my creation and he may be the prince of the power of the air, but not anymore. I'm going to make all of my enemies a footstool. All of the kingdoms of the earth are going to submit to me. And that includes the kingdom of darkness. And so the, the disciples are like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing because I have authority over everything, everything you see, everything you don't see. I have authority over that, but I have given that authority over to you. My response, I, I want to give this authority to you and then send you out, anoint you as my followers to help fulfill this work. I want you participating in this mission. That's the beauty of this. The idea that the God of the universe took on human flesh and then conquered the enemy and then gave that authority and said, now every single one of you that believes in me, I am now giving you a mandate to go into enemy territory and take that land back. This is why the disciples are rejoicing. Because Jesus says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Now, if you look under your seat, and just grab the snake. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> He's not talking about literal snakes. Okay? All right? He's not talking about literal snakes and literal scorpions. When we're told in Genesis that this creature talked to Eve, what are we told that this creature was? Serpent. In Revelation, when John tells us that these creatures were set out of the abyss and there's this demonic horde that's overtaking the earth and they have these tails like scorpions, what is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual entities. 
The idea that the people at this time had a reference point for what they could not see based off the things they could see was the precedent for why Jesus said, I'm giving you authority over serpents and scorpions. He's not saying I'm literally giving you authority to take up these poisonous things. What he's saying here is I have given you my authority over the enemy's kingdom. Satan and all his little scorpions, they have no power in my name. The point is that Jesus is trying to teach the 72 and us from Scripture that we are not on the losing team. That Christ has authority over evil spirits and they are subject to Christ. That demons have no power. That's funny, somebody was telling me the other way that there should be a, a Red Hills Church bingo. So that every time I say like demons or Nephilim, or circumcision. You know, it's like one, two, three. Oh, and he asked us to consider if whether we should even come back next week. Bingo. <clears throat> I just thought of that because I said demons again, so that counts. This is all important, one through tw- like one through 20, this is important, but like what does it mean? Okay, Jesus is showing these disciples that they have authority and power. Luke is trying to get you to understand the ever-growing, ever-expanding nature of this kingdom. We went from 12 to 72. In Luke's next book, we're going from 72 to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. From 3,000, it now expands to the entire globe. We're talking billions of people that fall themselves, call themselves Christians. That's what we're talking about. That the expansion of this kingdom started with Jesus and these 12 guys, and it has reached every corner of the globe. The idea that it is not just expanding numerically, but it is expanding spiritually. That the authority of darkness has no more reign on this creation. It has no proper claim. It has been dethroned, it has been pushed back, it has been made an open spectacle by what Christ did on the cross. Death has been conquered and all of it that comes with it, it has no more power. That's the purpose of this. Now the takeaway is to consider that if we are no longer under enemy control, then why are we living under enemy control? If we have power in Jesus' name, then why are we giving ourselves over to the things that the enemy has set in our path as snares and traps? Why do we give our flesh over to the things of this world that come from the enemy's camp? Vile, wicked, evil things that we allow to live on the inside of our minds. Why do we give ourselves over to things in this world that are just adjacent to the kingdom of darkness? The purpose of one through 10 is to remind God's people that they are supposed to be using their freedom in Christ to preach freedom to others and push back evil, not make friends with it not make alliances with it, not give it an opportunity to have a foothold in your life so that it can later dictate and control to you what can, what you can and cannot do. I want you thinking in terms of battlefield imagery. That's how Paul tells us to think about it. You put on your weapons, 
You put on your armor. You have yourself ready for the fight. You've got to be a soldier. You, this is not a passive battlefield. There is a war raging. And if you live like there isn't, you're going to continue to get your rear end kicked. The picture of one through 10 is a picture of Jesus sending his disciples into actual cities and saying, I want you to proclaim the good news and the gospel. I want evil conquered. I want you to push it back. I want you to expose it in every corner that it, that exists in. I don't want it hiding anymore because light is here. The king is here and you are supposed to be the ones who deliver that message. And so I just wonder what that would look like for us if we took that message seriously. If we stopped just being okay with evil hiding in little corners of our city. If we just stopped being okay with the members of this city medicating themselves into a coma so that they can forget about what needs to seriously be considered in terms of eternity. I wonder what it would look like if we just stopped being okay with the little corners of perversion and sexuality that exists in some of the little hotels around this town. I wonder what it would look like if we just stopped being okay with the corruption at literally every level of society. There's a mandate on us to push back darkness, to take authority over evil because this creation belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to Satan anymore. Now, here's the thing. You're sitting here thinking, you're like, well, you're looking around, you're like, well, I don't know, I watch the news, it don't seem like this all belongs to Jesus. Everything seems real rough right now. It doesn't seem like we're winning. It doesn't seem like we're taking any ground. You know why you think that? Because the enemy still controls the news. He controls most of the way that you consume content, and that's exactly what he wants you thinking that this church has been around for 2,000 years, and man, it, look, it hasn't done much. Not much is really going on. They're not making any headway. They're shrinking. They're less and less relevant. They're just a small minority of people who are just shouting about the same old thing they've been shouting over 2,000 years, and we need to just ignore them. The reason why we think that way is because we've been told to think that way, but scripture tells us to think differently. But there's a different way you're supposed to be thinking, and so you need to renew your mind and stop buying the lie that we are on our heels. The kingdom of God is advancing, it is expanding, and the gates of hell will not prevail Amen. against it. That's the truth. Amen. Now there's one final thing, there's one final warning in verse 20, because as soon as I started talking about this, you're like, yeah, all right. You want to be a ghostbuster? Mm-mm, you're not ghostbusters. You cannot be so fixated on demons that you start blaming them for everything because a lot of that stuff that you're suffering with, it may not necessarily be demonic, it's just flesh. It's your flesh that you haven't put to death. So rejoice in light, rejoice in heaven, rejoice in the good news while you're overcoming evil, but don't fall into the trap where that is all you see. Have the right view of it. 
Don't be so convinced that it doesn't exist, but also don't be so convinced that that is the only thing that exists. And it's the only thing that is at play. It is certainly at play, and you can't ignore that it, it doesn't, but it's not the only thing. All right, so let's pause there, let's continue. So what we've discussed now is Luke helping us see this expanding nature of the kingdom of God. It's, it's, it's expanding numerically, it's now it's, it's expanding uh, spiritually. Let's go to verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, Jesus. So in that same hour, same conversation, his disciples come back, they're all rejoicing. Now Jesus is rejoicing. Then he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, you, you, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Why? Why are their eyes blessed to see what they see? For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. See, speaking of rejoicing, in the previous verses where the disciples are rejoicing, now Jesus is rejoicing, and he's rejoicing at the scene set before him. The plans and purposes of God are finally being revealed. Things that prophets and kings waited their whole life to see and died without seeing are being set before Christians today. What a time to be alive. To be able to be alive in a time where you can read Isaiah and fully understand it now in the light of Jesus. It gets Jesus excited. He starts rejoicing. He's like, man, blessed are your eyes. And not just blessed are those, blessed are your eyes here today. Blessed are your eyes for being able to see and read and understand and comprehend and have a Bible in your own language and to hear God's word in a language you understand. To see the plans and the purposes of God that have been expanding at light speed ever since the resurrection that it's been taking ground over and over. These hidden mysteries of God's word are now revealed to everyday common folk. They're not sitting up here as oracles and you gotta come to some old guy with a big old long beard and have him explain everything to you. No, you're an average Joe. You can be just working in an average job anywhere in the country, just doing normal stuff. You're just a stay-at-home mom. You're just working an OPS job at the state. It don't matter who you are. All of the mysteries of God are accessible to you. All you have to do is ask. Man, blessed, blessed are your eyes and your ears for being able to see and hear and understand. Don't you understand how blessed you are that you have a Bible? that you can read it, that you can understand, that you can get God's plan, that you're not in the dark fumbling around trying to figure things out, that we're not in a time period where God says this thing's gonna happen, and we're like, well, I don't really know how it's gonna happen. No, it's already unfolded, and now we're looking back on this, drawing our inspiration, feeding on the word of God, understanding it, and then going out and preaching it clearly for people to understand. And it couldn't be any simpler. Mankind has a debt against God. 
You have rebelled. You have sinned. And there's nothing that you can do in your entire life if you tried to work it off for the rest of your life. You'd never be able to work it off. Your debt is so large, you can never pay off your sin debt before a holy God. But guess what? He sent his own son to pay that debt for you. If you believe in him, your, your slate is wiped clean, complete, new, fresh start, turning over a new leaf, never again living that old way. You are made a new creature just simply by believing in his sacrifice. The stuff that has been proclaimed for thousands of years now stands at this moment in verses 21 through 24 as being completely fulfilled. And Jesus is looking at these 72 and he's saying, you guys get it. Blessed are you for for forgetting it. And the question Luke wants to ask you is, are you getting it? Do you understand the magnitude of what's going on here? Do you really grasp, can you get your hands and your head around what's happening at this moment? That for all of eternity, darkness has been reigning on this earth since mankind chose to disobey God. But now from this point forward, God is gonna have his way. And now he has given authority to his own people to push back the enemy up until one point where he will split the sky, come back and judge the nations in person. All of this, this rejoicing of what Christ is seeing, I argue that he's still rejoicing today in the same sense that he's standing there before these 72, just so excited that my guys are finally getting it. These people are finally getting it. He is sitting right now in heaven looking over this church, rejoicing that some of you are getting it. That you're finally starting to understand that this isn't a game, it's not a social club. That what he's inviting you into is the deepest kind of relationship that will last for all eternity. It is something so deep on the inside of you that it literally changes who you are from the inside out. And you, who are you? You're a nobody, I'm a nobody. But he loved me. And he gave me another chance and he forgave me. He washed my sins away. And then he put a message in my mouth to then go faithfully proclaim. Who am I to not faithfully proclaim the message that changed my life? Luke is trying to get you to understand the fast, rapid, ever-expanding nature of God's kingdom. It's growing numerically. It's growing, growing spiritually from darkness into light. It's growing in the awareness, the inner soul of who we are. There's an awakening. There is, an, there is a, um, a, a moment where we come from, I, I don't quite understand, to, to almost like an epiphany, a revelation, where things start to make sense. It is this expanding, it is this growing, where yesterday I didn't quite understand this, and now I woke up and I was doing my Bible reading, and, and he showed me something, and I'm never gonna be the same. I, I read this and I can hear my God speak to me through his word and I'm never gonna be the same. It is this ongoing, ever-growing, ever-expanding, ever-consuming like a wildfire kind of thing. 
And Luke wants you to see it. But it's not just in those areas. It's not just numerically. It's not just spiritually. It's not just the change on the inside of your heart where you start growing and feeling different and maturing. There's one more aspect he wants you to see, and it's the sense that the kingdom of God, when it starts growing on the inside of you, it starts putting out roots outside of you. And that inner change starts producing an outer life. All right, so let's go to those last two stories. These last two are arguing for this kind of growth and transformation. Luke chapter 10, we're gonna go to verse 21. Or sorry, uh, verse 25. He says, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. All right, good job, man. That's Deuteronomy 6.5. You know your word. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, all right, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, make himself look righteous, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. Just a pause. There's something really important you've got to understand about Samaritans. In this story, for a Jew, the Samaritan was the bad guy. Samaritans were people that grew up primarily in that in-between north and south Israel. There, when, when the kingdom of, uh, of Israel split in half into Judah in the south and Israel in the north, right around the time after Solomon died, the northern kingdom, there was a boundary line drawn, and the northern kingdom couldn't come back down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple anymore. So they fixed that problem by setting up their own places of temple worship up on the high places. One of them was in this town called Dan. There was a golden calf there. And so this group of people, they started worshiping at false shrines, false temples, which eventually led to worshiping false gods, which eventually led to giving themselves over into marriage to people in the region who were not Jewish. And by the time that this is being taught, there's a whole region of people called Samaritans, and they were half Jewish and half Gentile. They served with half their heart the God of Israel, and the other half, whatever religious entities were at power in the regions that they lived in. A Samaritan was essentially a sellout, okay? So to inject a Samaritan into the story is a problem for a Jew, especially if that Samaritan is acting more kindly than his Jewish neighbors, the Levite and the priest. Verse 34, he went to him 
the Samaritan, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. All right, now what is going on in this parable? Well, we know that a lawyer asked a question about eternal life and the two, the lawyer and Jesus, they settle on this conclusion from Deuteronomy 6.5. What you're supposed to do in order to inherit eternal life according to the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the lawyer wants clarification on what neighbor means. Because to the lawyer, God is the God of Israel and his neighbors are Jews. Romans aren't neighbors. Samaritans aren't neighbors. Jews are neighbors. So this lawyer wants to catch Jesus in his definition of neighbor. And to answer the question, what Jesus does is he tells a parable. And he says, all right, let me tell you a little story. A man, I'm gonna answer your question by telling you a story. A man, he went down to another city. He was robbed and beaten up. A priest showed up and didn't help him at all. A Levite showed up and didn't help. Priests and Levites, those were Jews. So this half-dead Jew is laying in the road, and Jesus is using this half-dead Jew to explain who your neighbor is. And it turns out it's not who you thought. It's not the Levite. It's not the priest. It turns out to be this Samaritan. The Samaritan offers help and and even more, he pays all of the medical bills for this guy. And the question Jesus asks in verse 36, which of the three proved to be the neighbor? Now that verse, we just kind of run over and we misread this parable because the last question is the answer to the question. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus asked this guy, out of the three, who would you say is the neighbor? The parable isn't meant to cast yourself as the Samaritan. Now the Samaritan's example at the end of the story is the example we're supposed to be following, but the point of the parable is not for you to look at that and say, oh, well, the Samaritan, that, that's, who, that's who I've gotta be. That the Samaritan is looking out and he's seeing this poor guy and this poor guy is my neighbor and so I'm gonna be motivated to help this guy. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that you would cast yourself as the half-dead Jew. And as the half-dead Jew laying there with no help from who you thought was a neighbor, when the Samaritan comes up, this bad guy, the person who you would not think is a neighbor, the question is, can you recognize your enemy as your neighbor? Now this is an important parable because if you can't recognize your enemy as your neighbor, then you might be left for dead both physically and spiritually. The point of the parable is to help you correctly see who you are, who your neighbor is, and the needs around you. 
Not that you've got it all together and you're walking down the street and you might see this person who's in need. No, you are the person in need. Can you understand who your neighbor is? And that person's example becomes what Christ says in uh, verse 37, go and do likewise. Show mercy in the way you've been shown mercy. See, Luke records this story for one, to, to capture one important aspect of God's kingdom. That the work that God is doing on the inside of you is not merely an inner work. It is an inner work that is meant to grow into an outer life. Please don't miss that. It is not enough to grow in knowledge and know a lot of stuff. It is not enough to walk around with a head full of intellectual knowledge or a good understanding of Bible trivia. It is not enough to know God and to know your neighbors. Christ compels us to action. That's what this is all about. The ever-expanding, ever-growing of the, the kingdom of God that begins on the inner life and then bursts out into action. There was a time in the world where Christians led the world in art, in education, in medicine, in science, in morality, and that time has passed. But the mandate hasn't passed. There was a time in the world where Christians were compelled because of what Christ had done in them that they wanted to teach people how to read. There was a time in the world where Christians who were profoundly healed in their soul, they then wanted to extend healing to others. There was a time when most nurses in the world were nuns. There was a time when all great art came from Christian minds. Most great scientific advancements came from Christian minds. That is the aspect that we're trying to touch on. That's what Luke wants you to see. This idea that this truth, this, this inner sense of who is my neighbor, it isn't just knowing you're my neighbor, it's knowing that you are my neighbor and now I'm compelled to do something about it to not just know who lives next to you, but to actually act on that, to preach the gospel, to, to, to pray for them regularly, to not act like uh, it is enough to just simply know things, but to be compelled to action, to act on them. That's the outgoing, growing nature of this. And to illustrate this, Luke gives us one more story of a person who was profoundly changed by what they knew. It changed them so much that it literally changed their position in a home. Go to this last story. Go to verse 38 in Luke chapter 10. It says, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. And Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. Now that phrase may not seem like much to you, but the phrase sitting at his feet is a phrase used by Luke to describe someone being a disciple. He uses that phrase when he's talking about Paul sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. He was one who was gonna be the Jew of Jews. He was gonna be like, like the, this guy who knew it all. He was on a fast track to being one of the greatest sages in Israel. 
He sat at the feet of one of the smartest guys there were. And now Luke is using that phrase to this little girl named Mary who's sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching. And Martha, she was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Please tell her to help me. And the Lord answered, oh, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. See, Luke's second example of the expanding nature of the kingdom. The gospel has profoundly changed this young girl, Mary. The teachings of Jesus have moved her from her proper place in society in the kitchen to at the feet of Jesus where his disciples are. This inner belief has profoundly changed and transformed the outer nature of who she is so that she's literally not doing what she's supposed to be doing culturally. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha doesn't like it. He's upset, but Jesus doesn't correct Martha. Jesus corrects Mary. Why? Because this is a story about the inner work of Jesus producing measurable outward change. Now, Luke chapter 10 is a pretty hefty chapter. Luke 10 gives us many perspectives, but one central message, and this is the message. This is the point of Luke 10. Luke 10, that the kingdom of God is expanding. It's growing, it's expanding, it's not stopping. It went from 12 to 72 to 3,000 to literal billions. Expanding in the enemy's territory, taking back darkness, making sure that evil and the kingdom of the enemy is consumed, expanding in the inner work of people's lives, of their hearts, coming out into the outer life. Everywhere you look, this chapter is giving us examples of the kingdom expanding and consuming everything in its path. So the question before us today is, what is our takeaway? If that's what the chapter is about, what am I supposed to do about it? If you are presented with a picture of the kingdom of God expanding and growing everywhere it is, the logical question you have to ask yourself is, is that happening in my own life? And if I've presented with three ways that it's growing, I need, those, I need to use those as measuring sticks for whether the kingdom of God is growing in my life. If the kingdom of God is really growing in my life, if God has really transformed my life, am I telling people about it? Is there some measurable numerical growth where I am literally telling people on a regular basis that Jesus has changed my life? See, we're operating off of uh, maybe a 30-year paradigm shift within the church where we have been told that the Sunday morning gathering is primarily evangelistic. Now, some of that came, <clears throat> excuse me, from like tent revivals. Some of it came from a genuine desire to want to see Christians getting saved. 
But nowhere in the history of the early church is the Sunday morning gathering used for solely evangelistic purposes. Yes, the, preach, the, the, the word of God is proclaimed and non-believers do come into the service. Paul tells us when he's instructing on spiritual gifts, be careful the way you handle them because non-believers will be in the room and you don't want them being confused. So non-believers are in the room, but the purpose of the Sunday morning gathering is the training, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. What's the ministry? The ministry is the sending out all week long. And so I just want to be abundantly clear. The responsibility of preaching the gospel rests on all of our shoulders, not mine. If your end goal, if your, if your picture of evangelism is, I just want to be friends with my, I just want to build enough friendship with the people at work so that when they trust me, I'll just tell them, and you should come to church. You gotta hear this pastor. No, you got it wrong. I love you, but that's wrong. Christ has changed your life. You don't need me to articulate the gospel message. You have been transformed by it. You articulate it. You're like, ooh, I don't like that. Isn't that what we pay you for? You're supposed to be, you do that, huh? Well, in a lot of churches, that's the assumption, and then what happens is that Sunday morning becomes a regular tent revival, and some people do get saved, but eventually no one grows because the saints aren't being equipped for the work of ministry. They're convinced that ministry only happens for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. So you have to, you, when you read Luke 10, you have to ask yourself, what is the responsibility? If, if, what is, if what the Word of God says is true, that it is an ever-expanding, ever-growing, everywhere it goes, it's taking ground. If I believe that's true and I've seen it in my own life, then isn't that supposed to be happening in the evangelistic aspects of my life too? Yes, I am certainly growing. I'm doing this reading plan at church, man. I'm learning more than I ever learned, and I'm growing, and my relationship with God is closer than it's ever been. And worship, oh man, on Sunday morning, it's so good, and the preaching is so good, and I'm I'm growing as I'm growing as a disciple. Yeah, but are you are you telling people about it? Are you preaching the God? Are you praying for people? Or does it not even cross your mind that when you sit down at a restaurant, that waitress might need you to pray for her instead of belittle her because she didn't fill your water fast enough? You need to be considering the impacts of this message, the sheer numerical growth of the kingdom, but also the conquering of darkness aspect of this kingdom. If this is true, it should be true. There should not be corners of your life or your home where darkness rules. Now, I'm, t- I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the kingdom of the enemy trying to take ground in your life, like, like that little corner you have where you're, it's your computer, and when everyone else goes to bed, you look at things you don't need to be looking at. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that you're, it is normal in your home that whenever, when the teenagers come home, they go to their rooms, they shut their door, you don't know what they're doing in there. I can tell you what's happening in there. The enemy is gaining a foothold. That's what's happening in there. And if you're not careful, then the mandate that we have been given to conquer the enemy, to push back evil, we will be guilty of allowing evil to set foot in our homes and to grow because we didn't want to make anybody too upset. We didn't want to say the wrong thing. We didn't want to offend anybody. So you've got to, you've got to judge. If it's, a, if it's an ever-growing 
kingdom that, that conquers numerically, it, it conquers spiritually, and it also conquers inwardly and outwardly, then you have to ask yourself, in what ways is the kingdom outwardly changing me? If I'm involved in this Bible study and I'm learning these things, that's great, but what is it doing on the inside of me? Is it changing the very character? Is it forming and fashioning my very mind and my speech? Have I, because I've met Jesus, stopped using profanity? Have I, because I've met a king who wants to treat my body as a temple, has stopped using cigarettes or being a drunk? If I, if, if I really believe that, man, God's word is so true and I just want to speak life, then I have, on, 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 from the inner sense, now grown into an outer life where I just don't have any tolerance for gossip anymore. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to talk about it. Because if it's going to come out of my mouth, all I want is life and truth. I don't want death and accusations. I don't want to be lumped in with the accuser of the brethren. I don't want any part of that. That's just, look, I'm just cross-sectioning. Some of you are like, I feel very attacked today. I don't know, maybe it's the Holy Spirit. I I'm not trying to attack any specific person. I literally, I promise I don't have some, any person in my mind when I'm saying this. All I'm trying to do is help you understand how to apply this. If the word of God is true, and it is, it is ever-expanding, ever-consuming, and it's coming for you, and you can't run fast enough. And if that is true, then you need to start considering in what ways is it growing numerically in my life? Who am I touching with this truth? You need to be considering what areas of darkness are we pushing back because light is better than darkness? And finally, in what areas is this inner work now becoming an outward manifestation where people can see it? And I regularly hear people come up and say, dude, you're not the way you used to be. You're different. You could say, let me tell you why. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.